in order to sincerely aim with the intermediate scope motivation for liberation from uncontrollably recurring samsara, it is necessary to be convinced that it's possible to attain this. And similarly, on the advanced scope, it's necessary when we're aiming for enlightenment to be convinced that it's possible to attain that as well. And so since we don't have so much time, let me discuss these two issues together. We established that each of us has an individual mental continuum uh, with no beginning and no end. So we're going to have rebirth. And with no beginning, that mental continuum has been mixed with unawareness, or in simple language, confusion. So this is unawareness of behavioral cause and effect, that unhappiness comes from destructive behavior, happiness from constructive behavior, and unawareness of reality, how we exist, everybody else exists, all things exist. And based on that unawareness, then we have disturbing emotions, disturbing attitudes, and based on these disturbing emotions, then we act in destructive ways or constructive ways mixed with confusion, and this uh, leaves karmic aftermath on our mental continuum, these types of behavior, and we've seen that this karmic aftermath includes uh, tendencies and positive and negative karmic force and non-revealing forms and habits. And although we didn't cover this, and I don't want to go into depth because we don't have time, then the way that this karmic aftermath is uh, carried on the mental continuum, on the deepest level we have to look at the clear light mind and the subtlest energy wind that is the flip side of that clear light mind. So the karmic tendencies, the karmic forces or potentials, karmic potentials, and the habits, they're neither a form of physical phenomenon or a way of being aware of something. They are simply imputed on a basis. The gross basis for it would be the continuum of the clear light mind, and the subtle basis of imputation would be the mere I or self that is imputed on the continuum of the clear light mind. As I said, I'm just going to throw out this information. We don't have time to explored in depth, but we can understand that these things that are merely imputed here are abstract. It's like uh, we drink coffee, drink coffee day before yesterday, yesterday, today, and so as a way of putting it together, organizing that, we could say there's a tendency to drink coffee. But that tendency is not something physical, it's not a way of being aware of something, it's just a way of what can be imputed on it on this uh, sequence of similar events. And the non-revealing form would be mixed, in a sense, with the subtlest energy wind, so it's transmitted from lifetime to lifetime, from moment to moment in this vehicle. And the unawareness and the disturbing emotions and the disturbing attitudes have tendencies and habits as well. Okay, now, let's just speak in terms of tendencies. Let's make it simple. Tendencies versus habits. And let's speak in terms of the disturbing emotions. The tendency of a disturbing emotion will give rise to another uh, manifestation or instance of that disturbing emotion. For instance, anger. It only happens sometimes. We're not angry all the time. Now, as I said, the disturbing emotions are based on unawareness of 
let's just speak in terms of how we exist, or in simpler language, unawareness of reality, right? That's going to underlie both destructive and constructive behavior, and underlying destructive behavior in addition is the unawareness of cause and effect. Okay, so now this unawareness of reality is based on the fact that our mind makes an appearance of things existing in an impossible way. And we have what's called grasping for truly established existence, which means that we both perceive that impossible way of existing and believe that it actually corresponds to reality. And when we believe that it corresponds to reality, then we act upon that misconception. We get disturbing emotions, and from that we actually physically or verbally or mentally act on it. So the habits of our unawareness cause the mind to make these appearances of impossible ways of existence, and truly established existence, and the tendencies cause us to believe in them. Right. And then the disturbing emotions arise. That's so we have two categories here. One is called emotional obscurations, and one is called the cognitive obscurations. And the cognitive obscurations are the habits of our unawareness. When we get rid of the emotional obscurations, we achieve liberation. When, in addition, we get rid of the cognitive obscurations, we achieve the omniscient state of the Buddha. Now, again, pardon me that I have to go a little bit quickly, but there's a tremendous amount of material on my website concerning voidness, and part of that certainly was taught here. Okay, so there are many, many levels of impossible ways of existing, many levels of subtlety of that, that our mind makes appear. And on the deepest level, most subtle level, it's an appearance of what's called truly established existence. And in the different Indian Buddhist tenet systems, truly established existence is defined differently. So here we're going to look at the Prasangika definition of it as understood by the Galuk tradition. What are we talking about here? We are talking about what establishes the existence of something. We're not talking about the way of existing. We're talking about what establishes the existence of something. This is subtly different. That's not an easy word, establish. What proves that something exists? So a very simplistic thing that would demonstrate that something exists that we have in the earlier tenant systems would be that it performs a function. It does something, and because it does something, that establishes that it exists. That proves or demonstrates that it exists. That's in the lower tenant system. Now, when we speak about this truly established existence, what that means is an appearance that there is something on the side of the object that establishes that it exists, that establishes its existence either by its own power or in conjunction with other factors, like uh, conceptual mental labeling. So let's take an example so that we can understand this. Because when we understand voidness, what we're understanding is an absence of an actual referent to this impossible ways of existing. There is no such thing. It's not referring to anything real. For example, we could say, I have a big house, or I have a strong body. This is uh, perhaps a better example. Now, what appears to us, the way that our mind makes it appear, is that there is something on the side of the body that makes it strong, right? Without depending on anything else. I'm strong, healthy, 
Right? Of course, all the causes for that don't appear to us, that, that being strong arises dependently on good health and good diet and exercise and so on. It doesn't no, seem to arise from that. It seems to be a you know, strong body. You no, see no. yourself in the mirror, a strong body. But if being strong was established on the side of the body, then it should be strong in any situation. So, even in comparison to other things. But actually, being strong in relation to the body of a baby, it's strong. In relation to the body of an adult male gorilla, not strong. It's weak. So, being strong arises dependently on other factors. So, what does it arise dependently on? It's not only dependently on diet and exercise, not only dependent on relative to other things that we're comparing it to, but also dependently on the word and concept of strong. I mean, we're just doing things every day, aren't we? And so somehow we point out different factors of what we're doing every day, and on the basis of that, we have a concept of strong. And then there are some meaningless sounds that cave people or whatever that started our language put together and represented that concept with the sound. And so we got a word, strong. So what establishes that the body is strong? The only thing that you could say that establishes it is merely mental labeling, it's called. Being strong is merely what the word and concept being strong refers to, imputed on a basis. But there's nothing on the side of the basis that establishes being not strong. Nothing findable. So we could say, but aren't there defining characteristics of being strong? They're able to lift you know, 100 kilos and so on. Entonces Isn't no. that a defining characteristic of strong Entonces, on the side of the object? No, because that defining characteristic was also made up by uh, people and a mind that thought up the concept of strong. And they made up the definition, put it in a dictionary, and there you have strong. But that's totally mentally constructed. But however, our mind makes this appearance as if you, know, you just see the body. And, you know, it's strong. Well, I just, you know, did a hundred push-ups. I'm strong. Now, based on that appearance and then believing it, that it refers to something real, then we exaggerate the quality of it, and then we get attachment. We get pride and arrogance. We look at somebody else who we consider stronger and we get jealousy. Today I wasn't able to do a hundred push-ups. I could only do fifty. I get angry. So, like this, we get all the disturbing emotions based on believing in this appearance of what's impossible. But it doesn't mean that conventionally there's no such thing as strong. Well, conventionally, in terms of our names and concepts and so on, I'm strong. Pero bueno, That's not no. a problem. We're not saying that nothing exists. Right? I am strong conventionally, dependent on the word and the concept and Dependia. in comparison to the baby and so on. But nothing on the side of strong <laughs> it establishes that I'm strong. Right? Nothing on the side of the basis for imputation or on what's being imputed, either conventionally or ultimately. So, obviously, this is a topic that has to be <laughs> gone into much more deeply. I'm just trying to explain it quickly. 
But the more we think about it and think about logically how it's impossible if there was something on the side of the object that made me strong. I should be strong regardless of any sickness, regardless of old age, regardless of anything. When we use logic and so on, we see this is ridiculous. So when we focus on voidness, what we're focusing on is no such thing. It's a total absence of an actual referent, a referent object of this appearance of a truly established existence. It's not referring to anything real. Absent. It never was there. Right? Another term for that is that there's no such thing as a backing support of this appearance of something impossible. There's nothing backing it you know, in terms of what it's referring to. Like when there's a shadow of someone on a window shade, there's a backing support of an actual person behind there that's casting the shadow. So here, in this case, although there's an appearance of truly established existence, like a shadow, there's nothing behind it that is supporting it it's from its own side. Now, when we focus on voidness and are totally absorbed, that's a technical term in terms of a perfect concentration, so when we're totally absorbed on voidness, right, on no such thing, what we're focusing on is no such thing, then, at that time, the mind is not making an appearance of truly established existence and is not believing in it. We're talking about when this is occurring non-conceptually, right? When it's conceptual, it's mixed with the category of voidness. I won't go into detail about what that means. That's very complex. There's a whole weekend course on that on my website if you're interested. Okay, so there's no appearance of truly established existence, and there's, of course, then no believing in it. So now we have the mental continuum, and that mental continuum has been... The word is stained or tainted by certain stains, by these emotional obscurations and cognitive obscurations. Right? No beginning. Every moment. Except at the time of the clear light of death and when we are totally absorbed on voidness. Right? This is one of the characteristics of the subtlest clear light mind. Although it may have the habits and tendencies of unawareness imputed on it, but nevertheless, it itself is more subtle than all of this, and it does not produce an appearance of truly established existence, and certainly doesn't believe in it, and doesn't have any disturbing emotions. Uh It's also non-conceptual. Okay, so now the question is, can these stains the emotional and cognitive obscurations, be removed. Are they part of the essential nature of the clear light mind, or are they what we would call fleeting stains? And if they were part of the nature of the mind, the defining characteristics of mind, of mental activity, they should be present every single moment. However, they are not. There are occasions, like I just said, total absorption on voidness and clear light mind of death, when they are not. That demonstrates that they are not part of the nature of the mind. Remember, when we get rid of the emotional obscurations, that's liberation. When we get rid of the cognitive ones, that's the omniscient state of the Buddha. Right? Remember, the disturbing emotions cause samsaric rebirth, as described in the Twelve Links. And when our mind makes appearances of truly established existence, 
makes things appear totally independently and unrelated to each other. And so because of that, we don't see the interconnectedness of everything, particularly in terms of cause and effect, so we're not omniscient. We don't know how best to help everybody, what are the causes for their problems, and what will be the result of anything we teach. So, the question is, then, if these are fleeting stains, they're not part of the essential nature or defining characteristics of the mind, clear light mind, can they be stopped forever? Forever, remember, this is true stopping. Third noble truth, true stopping is they are gone forever. Because tendencies and habits can be imputed on the clear light mind and on the mind that is totally absorbed on voidness, which is why after we arise from these states, then these things recur. So, how do we get rid of them? So that they don't recur. Is it possible? Okay, so now we have to go back to understand the nature of tendencies and habits. Tendencies and habits are imputed on a sequence of similar events. We can only say that there is a presently happening, a presently occurring tendency on my mental continuum, only if there can be future recurrences Solo. of what it is that's been repeating. If there can be no more future occurrences, then all we can say is that there was a previous, a past tendency or habit, but not presently. You understand that? I have a tendency of writing with my right hand. That is a presently happening tendency. It's presently occurring. It's presently there because I can still write with my right hand in the future. So, then I lose my right hand in an accident. Do I still have the habit of writing with my right hand? No, I had a habit of writing with my right hand, but I can't write with my right hand anymore because I don't have one. So it's only past tendency and habit, not present one. So, if we can prevent any future recurrence of appearance-making of true existence and, and believing in it, then the tendency and habits are finished. Forever, they're not going to come back. So, the more we can stay absorbed on voidness, non-conceptually, in which, you know, there is no appearance of true existence, there is no grasping for it, the weaker and weaker the tendencies and habits become. Remember, the unawareness and all the disturbing emotions are based on believing that this garbage, this appearance, refers to something real. And we are experiencing more and more and more that it doesn't refer to something real. More and more we stay absorbed on voidness, eventually we will stop believing that this uh, appearance refers to something real, so that tendency will get weaker and weaker and weaker and eventually be finished, in which case we are rid of the emotional obscurations, we've attained liberation. Because it's this unawareness that initially brings about these karmic actions that leave the karmic aftermath, and it's the disturbing emotions that activate the karmic aftermath, to produce a future rebirth. That's all described in the 12 links. So, when there is nothing to activate the karmic aftermath, these tendencies and so on, are karma. There's nothing to activate it, and there's nothing that's planting more karmic aftermath, then samsaric rebirth is finished forever. And if we can stay focused on voidness forever, which is what we would do as a Buddha, totally absorbed on voidness forever, 
then there would be no more appearance of truly established existence. Our mind would not produce that, and we would be omniscient, because we would then be able to perceive the interconnectedness of everything. So this is how we establish the existence and the possibility of liberation and enlightenment. Now, that mind which understands voidness needs to have a certain strength to it. We could understand voidness just as an intellectual exercise in our class or in university. And that doesn't have very much force to it, that understanding. In fact, it could lead to a lot of arrogance. But if that understanding has the force of renunciation behind it, then it has enough energy to be able to get rid of the tendencies of the disturbing emotions and the disturbing emotions themselves. Why? Because we are renouncing the result of the disturbing emotions and the tendencies for them. We are renouncing samsaric rebirth. That is what we are determined to be free of, and we are willing to give up its causes. That's what we are renouncing. It's the third form of suffering, all-pervasive suffering of these aggregates. Anybody can renounce, you know, I don't want to have pain anymore. That's no big accomplishment. An animal could have that as well. And many other religions renounce our worldly happiness to go to some paradise. That's specifically uh, Buddhist. So what we're renouncing is this third type of suffering, which is that samsara. That's the basis of samsara. So, very important. Remember our description of what is an arhat. We're not renouncing the fact that we will continue to appear and benefit others and learn and so on and be with teachers and eat, etc. We're not renouncing that. We are renouncing all of that happening under the force of karma and disturbing emotions and being associated with karma and uh, disturbing emotions and building up more. What characterizes samsara? It goes up and down. Sometimes I feel good, sometimes I don't feel good, sometimes I feel happy, sometimes I feel unhappy. And it goes up and down, and we have no way of predicting how we're going to feel in the next moment. And even when we're feeling good, we have to be parted from it. We're not satisfied, I don't feel good enough, etc., etc. This is the samsaric situation that we are renouncing. So we're not renouncing existing, we're not renouncing life. Now, of course, you know, mental blocks. Well, if my life doesn't have this up and down and so on, then my life will be empty, it will be boring, the up and downs make it exciting and so on. Well, analyze that a little bit more deeply. We still have aggregates that make up our each moment of our experience. We still have feelings, but they are not disturbing feelings. As we said, we have non-disturbing happiness and equanimity. And it's not that we have no emotions whatsoever. We don't have disturbing emotions. We have love, we have compassion, we have generosity, we have patience, we have affection, and so on. So these are the things that we work with to really become someone of an intermediate scope. So unless we really are confident that it is possible that the mental continuum, my mental continuum, not only goes on forever, but it is not stained in its nature by the emotional obscurations, I'm convinced of that, and that it's possible to stop them forever, and I have a correct identification of what it is I'm renouncing, and what it is that's going to result from it as being an archive. When all of that is clear and we're confident about it, then we 
are going on the road of actually becoming somewhat of an intermediate scope. Okay, there's a lot more detail we could give about the intermediate scope, but we don't have time. Let's go on to the advanced. So, when we have the understanding of voidness, which is combined with the force of a mind that is with renunciation, that's determined to be free from the uncontrollably recurring existence, the third type of suffering, and all the things that are part of that, and therefore determined to achieve liberation in our heart, plus the prayers to be to be liberated, you know, so that intention, then that gives the force of the mind to bring about liberation. But when we have the force of bodhicitta aim as the force of the mind that understands voidness, then it's able to stay focused on voidness forever and get rid of the cognitive obscurations as well. Why? Okay. First of all, I have a mental continuum, no beginning, no end, and it's not stained by these two obscurations. So does everybody else. The first thing we have to realize. Therefore, on the basis of that, equanimity to everybody. So, although my mind makes it appear when I see a mental continuum that because of its karma is now connected with the body of an insect, that doesn't mean that this mental continuum from its own side is established as an insect mental continuum. There's no such thing as an insect mental continuum, or a male, or a female, or a human, or a Mexican, or whatever. And my mental continuum, we didn't make this a point, but the mental continuum itself is devoid of existing in possible ways, right? Existing all by itself with uh, big walls around it independently. This is ridiculous. All our mental continuums have interacted with each other and been influenced by each other in terms of what we experience. Then we factor in beginningless time, and as a consequence of that, we have all at some time not only helped each other, but been each other's mother and father, etc. And everybody wants to be happy, nobody wants to be unhappy. That's a basic principle for every mental continuum. And so we're all equal on that basis. So we're all interconnected with each other, and we are all basically have what we would call Buddha nature, which means the basic purity of the mental continuum, which will allow for the fact that we can become, all of us can become enlightened. Not just me. And so, we are convinced that everybody can achieve liberation and enlightenment. If we're aiming to help everybody achieve liberation and enlightenment, we need to believe that it's possible for them to actually achieve that, don't we? And when we understand the voidness of the mental continuum, or the clear light mind, or however we want to formulate it, then we understand that it is possible to influence and help others that, you know, a causal relationship is possible between mental continuums without exaggerating what's possible or denying what is possible, right? Based on actually understanding cause and effect, right? Based on actually understanding cause and effect. Esto basado en el, en el correcto entendimiento de causa y efecto. So, already from this factor, this uh, great compassion here is aimed at absolutely everybody based on understanding that they all can achieve liberation and enlightenment, equally, and therefore it is appropriate for us to work for that, so we can see, and we, we see the interconnection of everything, maybe not so clearly, but at least we understand the principle. Now you start to understand how the force of that is so vast that it can act as a cause for actually achieving the omniscient mind of a Buddha that has that level of vastness. So, bodhicitta aim 
now is based on that compassion and taking responsibility to bring everybody to enlightenment. Entonces, Exceptional resolve is called. Based on that, induced by that, and realizing that only if we become a Buddha we'll be able to help them fully. That is, if we get rid of not just the emotional, but the cognitive obscurations as well, then we are focused on our not yet happening enlightenment. We don't want to use the word future because then we get confused here. The Buddhist concepts are very different from the Western concept of past, present, and future. So let's not confuse it. And I have a huge article on that on my website. Not yet happened. So we are talking about our own individual enlightenment, which is referring to the third and fourth noble truths, the true stopping and of the two obscurations and the true pathway minds that have not yet happened on our mental continuum, but which can happen. When we talk about future in a Western context, it sounds as though the future is happening somewhere out there. If we could go faster than the speed of light, we will catch up with the future and travel to the future. That's totally not the Buddhist understanding. In Buddhism, we talk about the no longer happening presently happening and not yet happening. So only if something is possible can we speak of it not yet happening. But my enlightenment is not happening now. But it can happen on the basis of the purity of the mental continuum and the causes that are built up there, like the network of positive force and of deep awareness, the so-called accumulation of merit and wisdom. Not yet happening enlightenment is imputed on its cause and on the basis, which is the purity of the mind. So that's what we're focusing on. Our own individual, not yet happening, third and fourth noble truths, enlightenment. And we're convinced that it's possible because we have already demonstrated that the true stoppings are possible. Of the emotional and cognitive obscurations, they are fleeting stains. They are not part of the nature of the mind. So we are aiming then, you know, with bodhicitta, we have an enormous vast, vast uh, scope of mind. This is Mahayana. Vast vehicle of mind. It's not just vehicle. We're not talking about an automobile. We're talking about a vehicle of mind that will bring us somewhere. Bring us to enlightenment. It is enormous because we're thinking in terms of all beings, all mental continuums, and the interconnectedness of all of them, and the uh, total purity of our own individual mental continuum, and of everybody's mental continuum, and you know, I mean, it's just fast. And that gives the force for the understanding of voidness to be able to cut through the habits of unawareness as well. In other words, we are able to then stay in this total absorption on voidness forever. Intermediate scope. No matter what we encounter in our ordinary samsaric existence, we see as a form of suffering. What does that mean? So, does that mean that we can't, we don't enjoy ourselves anymore? We're really grim all the time? No. We are not fooled by what we see. We see that this is, I mean, just on even a superficial level, that it has arisen based on causes and conditions and is going to change. It's not going to last. Whatever happiness we have is going to change and, you know, we're not going to have enough, etc. And so we just enjoy what's happening without having problems with it. This is fine, I enjoy this meal, it's going to be finished, I'm going to be hungry afterwards. You know, that's what I want to get rid of, but meanwhile, I have to eat. So while I'm eating, I'll enjoy it, but not make a big thing out of enjoying it. 
and marvel your soul how wonderful it is. None of that. It's calm. We don't exaggerate anything. So, on a practical level, what does this mean? What type of attitude do we have? Let's say, in our interactions with people. You know, some people we're very attracted to, and desire, others we're angry with, and so on. Even if we are not able to apply the understanding of voidness, we can apply a temporary antidotes. Right? Very, very helpful visualization. So, we try to, you know, imagine that we have x-ray vision. And whether we're looking at the skeleton, imagine the skeleton of the person, I find much more effective uh, peeling off the skin, as Shantideva suggests, and imagining this uh, person, or animal, or whatever, just in terms of the muscles and the intestines and the stomach and the lungs, etc., and thinking how this person, no matter how attractive they are or how repulsive and uh, you know angry I am with how they're behaving, that they're under the influence of disturbing emotions and so on. They're going to have a pain in their back and they're going to have this and that. And it diffuses this attraction and this uh, repulsion and anger, which is really based just on the superficial appearance. Very, very helpful. Algunos can start to really visualize like that all the time. Right? So we're renouncing. I don't want to have this attraction. I don't want to have this repulsion. It just is causing me problems, causing unhappiness, suffering, difficult situations. So I am determined to be free of that. To be free of that means that I have to apply some opponent to oppose these. It's not just a nice wish and do nothing. You know, or maybe they'll go away if I pray hard enough. Now, looking deeper into the person and seeing, you know, the insides of them, this is true, I mean, it's there, it's not something which is a fantasy, but also their surface appearance is likewise there. We don't deny their surface appearance. And eventually we get to the point where we are not so much under the influence of desire and so on, and then we are able to just enjoy the beauty of somebody. The beauty of a flower, the beauty of a meal, and we're not disturbed by it. Because we understand a deeper level of it. And we strive to be able to see the beauty in far more things than we had before. So, intermediate scope, our focus then is renouncing these disturbing emotions and you know, the whole samsaric situation that's brought on by them. That's our focus. But, I mean, a Dharma light version of it is thinking just in terms of this lifetime. So the real thing is thinking in terms of how, if we don't get rid of these disturbing emotions, it's just going to perpetuate themselves forever with uncontrollably recurring rebirth. And we certainly don't want that. So that is what we are focusing on overcoming, actually. And when we become a person of advanced scope, then we are focusing not just on overcoming our disturbing emotions towards everybody and everything, but extending compassion, seeing that they're all in the same situation, they're all under the influence of karma and disturbing emotions, they're all having the up and down suffering of some sort, they all have the basis for that, and how terrible that is. And we are focusing on the fact that the no longer happening of there being my mother, they're presently happening being an insect, and they're not yet happening being a Buddha. And we relate to them on all three levels, on the basis of understanding the purity of the mind, etc., etc.
So that's not <laughs> an easy accomplishment. That's really not <laughs> at all if we're able to have that with everybody. And how about having it simultaneously with everybody? Okay. So these are some of the issues that we work with with the Lamrim material. There's no time to go into detail about all the different aspects that we meditate on with each scope, but what I've tried to present are some of the issues that need to be worked on, and certainly I've tried to work on them myself with the aim of actually trying to transform myself into these type of persons. And it's not easy, and we shouldn't fool ourselves that it's easy or trivializing. And we've seen how each of these stages are built on the basis of and include the uh, previous steps. We need to realize that our own mental continuum has no beginning and no end, so there's going to be more rebirths. So don't just be focused on what's happening now. Think in terms of it's not yet happening, and if we don't do anything about it, it's just going to continue forever in a subsidiary situation. And although it has been mixed with no beginning, with the emotional obscurations, it is possible to remove them forever. So there's a not yet happening liberation that can be imputed on my mental continuum. And the same thing in terms of not being stained by nature by the cognitive obscuration. So I can look ahead to the not yet happening enlightenment. And I understand the countless number of other mental continuums in exactly the same situation and the interconnectedness of all of us. So we turn away from just our focus on this lifetime and think in terms of the future, right? in other words, what's coming next. And then we turn away from our focus on what's coming next just within the boundaries of samsara and look ahead to the uh, state of liberation. And then we turn away from being focused just on that aspect of liberation and turn our attention to uh, the not yet happening enlightenment. So yeah. each of these stages has a renunciation, a turning away from something. And so we have renunciation here. We're focused on our not yet happening enlightenment, so it's bodhicitta, and all of this is possible because we understand the voidness of the mental continuum. So these are the three principal aspects of these pathway minds. It's Sokapa emphasizes it, renunciation, bodhicitta, the understanding of voidness. And it's only on the basis of this that tantra practice makes any sense and is possible. Our not yet happening enlightenment, we visualize that in terms of happening now, although we realize it's not happening now in terms of the visualization of ourselves as a Buddha figure. Right? It's not yet happening now, but I'm representing what I'm aiming for on the basis of renouncing, turning away from my ordinary samsaric existence and appearance you know, of true existence and all the disturbing emotions. So turning away from that, renouncing that, based on the understanding of voidness. Well, so it's totally, tantra practice is totally on the basis of these three principal aspects. Impossible without them. Not so much impossible, but highly dangerous. Without them, because you, you have the danger of going crazy, basically. I'm Tara, I'm Cleopatra, I'm Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so, we think whatever understanding, whatever positive force has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for not only us, but everybody to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of everyone.